0: Hi, everyone. It's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington, D.C. on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there.
1: Chapter 15, The Quidditch Final. He he sent me this, Hermione said, holding out the letter. Harry took it. The parchment was damp, and enormous teardrops had smudged the ink so badly in places that it was very difficult to read. Dear Hermione,
0: we love.
1: I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
0: And I'm Casper Terkyle.
1: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
0: I think like most people, I hated going to the dentist as a kid. It was a place that was scary. There were machines and noises. And the worst thing was the pain. They would be drilling or pulling or all sorts of things in my mouth that just didn't feel nice. And so I was thrilled when I had a new dentist, Dr. White. And my first appointment at Dr. White's office was very nice. First of all, he had a fun South African accent. Secondly, he always told jokes. And thirdly, He was the most thoughtful dentist I've ever encountered because he taught me something very, very helpful. Actually, two things. The first thing he taught me was that if you're worried about feeling pain, it's actually much more pleasant to feel in control of the pain that you're experiencing and to hurt yourself just a tiny, tiny bit. Instead of feeling the pain that the dentist is giving you. So he taught me if you put one thumbnail on the bottom of the other thumbnail, put your two hands together and push the bottom of the other thumbnail, it's unpleasant and it's a little bit painful, but it feels so much better than like, you know, extracting pains in your mouth. And the second thing, and I will never forget this, is that he said, when you feel pain, try to remember that there's a difference between sensation and pain. And that if you really focus on your breathing, in and out, in and out, you will notice that you can tell the difference between the two, between sensation and pain. And like, this rocked my world. And I never realized until I started thinking about this theme of pain that we've read chapter 15 through, that my dentist was my first meditation teacher. Because that's what meditation is all about, is noticing a stimulus and then noticing your reaction to a stimulus. And so our bodies feel sensation and our minds create a story of pain for good reason, right? It's how we protect ourselves. But in the moments where we might have to suffer a little bit of pain to get to healthy teeth or a filling or extracting a wisdom tooth, sometimes we have to be able to kind of make it over that bridge And that's why I think Dr. White is the best dentist in the world, because he didn't just help me with my teeth, but he taught me a really important life lesson about pain and suffering. So I'm excited to kind of dig into this understanding of what pain is and how we might experience it together. Not that we're going to experience pain together, I hope, but that we can dig into what it might mean.
1: Casper, I love the idea that there's more to do with pain than just try to avoid it. Pain is something that we can be in relationship with and think about in different and complicated ways.
0: But before we dig in, Vanessa, it's time for our 30-second recap. And I believe it is your turn to go first. Are you ready to go?
1: I was born ready.
0: Three, two, one go
1: so Hermione shows Ron and Harry Hagrid's note with the teardrops and it's so sad and the three of them are like why did we ever hate each other and Hermione is like my point exactly Hermione hits Draco Woo! violence love it and then Mrs. Flitwick's class and then there's the big match between Slytherin and Gryffindor and some shenanigans happen Not a crazy amount of shenanigans and Harry catches the snitch and he's like oh my god if I had to a Patronus right now. I'd be able to do the best one in the entire world because I'm so happy.
0: Some shenanigans? This game is epic.
1: No, it's not. Okay,
0: bring on my 30 seconds. There are no
1: Okay, I look forward to it. Are you going to do it as Lee Jordan?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I'm allowed to curse that much on this show.
1: <laughs> I can be McGonagall and yell at you. <laughs> on your mark get set, go.
0: So Hermione, Ron and Harry all make up. It's wonderful. Everyone's getting very excited for the big Quidditch game. The Ravenclaws, the Hufflepuffs, they're all going like crazy for Gryffindor, anyone to beat Slytherin and um, Flint has chosen a really big muscly group and only Malfoy's the little one and um, they have to win by 50 points to win the House Cup and uh, Malfoy is just like kind of just screwing around and then lots of bludges and and action and um, uh, so much excitement and then they wait for the 50 point score and then Harry gets thing and oliver wood cries hysterically and uncontrollably yeah. i wanted to add more detail I was sports blah 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 yeah i was just trying to get into the mindset of a sports commentator i think that would be really hard
1: oh my god i think what they do is incredibly hard yeah useless but difficult <laughs>
0: <laughs> so vanessa where do you want to start with this theme of pain what do we learn about it in this chapter
1: so I think the, like, big famous moment in this chapter is when Hermione slaps Malfoy. I think it is so interesting that Hermione does this. I know that this is supposed to be, like, a big hurrah moment. Like, yeah, Hermione punch that jerk. And obviously Malfoy is the worst. But I just very rarely think violence is the answer. So I'm not sure what we make of the fact that Hermione inflicts pain upon Malfoy. And the only thing I can think is that Hermione is in a sort of pain. She's exhausted. She has, like, had her friends ripped away from her, right? Like, she's stressed about a million different things, and so she takes it out on Malfoy.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a classic situation of hurt people hurting people. And I think you're right to pick up on this moment, which is right after Harry, Ron and Hermione have been reunited, or at least they've set aside their differences. And I think it's kind of Hermione exercising her demons like she's back on the in group. And she now is in a place where she can kind of lash out without being worried what the consequences are going to be because she's got that protection.
1: So I have this thing that's been bugging me lately, which is that I've become very conscious of the negative aspects of the housing system. I think it's so strange that they separate these kids based on these characteristics and that they then have them compete on teams against one another for these characteristics. So it's become like bravery against cunning, How were Hermione and Draco ever going to get along if they are put on these opposing teams? And I think whenever we separate ourselves in ways that aren't natural, which I would say maybe the housing system is like this, that there is a ripping, there is a pain in that separation, right? I mean, there's a pain in the separation of like two kids who arrived on a train together and you're like, now you're on this team and you're on this team and you are rivals.
0: Right. It's a way of structuring pain in a way. Yeah. So I went to a school which had four houses. I can't remember if I've ever told you this, but there were four kind of English What we called explorers, but I'm thinking colonialists is probably a better word. (laughs) Wellington, Drake, Marlborough and Nelson. And I was in Wellington House. And the way that someone explained it to me, which I think really makes sense for the Hogwarts context, is that it's actually a way of controlling the children's behavior in the classroom. So by making them count points and have victories around something that they care about, like Quidditch or sport, and bringing the same point system into the classroom... It's a way of leveraging the coolness or the, or the skill of the sports field into managing disruptions in the classroom, because if you lose 50 points from Gryffindor, everyone's going to be really mad at you, which makes sense to me. But again, I think illustrates that the school system as it is, is not really designed around individuals learning. It's designed for control. And it's this very kind of mechanistic, industrial age approach to learning, which you know, it's another chapter for our book, which is uh, The Failed Pedagogy at Hogwarts. going to be a bestseller. It's bestseller.
1: But at your school, were you guys separated randomly or were you separated for reasons?
0: No, it was totally random.
1: Yeah. So I think that the fact that they are saying you belong in Gryffindor <gasps> because of something essential about you Ooh. versus you belong in Slytherin because of something essential about you is problematic. I think once we start separating people in these categories, it can become really easy to stereotype against one another. You start to see yourself in like groupthink of like, well, I'm supposed to be cunning all the time. And even if you're feeling a moment of compassion, you're like, well, if I want to be a real Slytherin, I'm going to prioritize these other attributes. I think it can limit us and it can separate us. It can really make us enemies rather than rivals.
0: Gosh, even within Gryffindor, I think we see a moment like that where enemy lines gets in the way of actual empathy. And it's in the moment where, you know, as soon as Ron and Hermione make up, the first thing Hermione says, I'm really, really sorry about scabbers. And it's something that she's been wanting to say for a while, but because of the distance between the two and because of the ill feeling, she hasn't been able to show weakness or show regret or remorse because, you know, someone would pounce on it. And I think what you're illustrating in the house system is that those battle lines are drawn in the same way that it's a risk to have a relationship with someone in another house, even a friendship, because, you know, your loyalties are divided or something like that. And it gets in the way of empathy and real care being shown between individuals.
1: Yeah. And when does, like, sports gear or, like, fan pride turn into a uniform? And when does that, like, turn into a straitjacket? And I think that, you know, there's a point at which that becomes very painful. And I think we just have to be careful when those lines are crossed.
0: This is, of course, all true and we should say that Slytherin behave abysmally on the Quidditch pitch. So I feel like they have abandoned the the fair play principle. And so, you know, maybe we should also make the difference between Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw supporting Gryffindor on the Quidditch pitch and more generally in life. Like maybe this is just kept to the Quidditch pitch because they've behaved so badly.
1: To be clear, I hate Draco. I'm not like pro any of the behavior that Slytherins are embodying here. But I also wonder if the reason that Slytherins behave so badly on the Quidditch pitch is because it's like, well, you're not going to like us anyway, so we might as well win, right? Like if somebody has very low expectations of you, it's easy to live up to those low expectations. Nobody expects them to be gracious. Nobody expects them to be kind. So why would they be? This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quips Electric Toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash harrypotter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash harrypotter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, And it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter.
0: One thing I want to just come back to with the kind of Hermione Malfoy, which in the text is a slap, in the movie is a punch. But it reminds me, you know, as we're talking about unthinkingly, like following the party line, like, of course, we're going to think about, you know, Nazism and dictators and being caught up in things that you know is wrong. There is this kind of ethical quandary, which is semi-famous now of like, should you punch a Nazi? Is it right to return violence to people? perceived violence or expected violence or actual violence. And it's such an ethical quandary because you look at something like the bombing of Dresden, right, towards the end of the war, when Britain firebombed this huge city full of civilians. You can't look at that and not be ashamed, you know, from an Allied point of view of of creating that much horror and pain. And so I I don't know, I think in this small moment between Hermione and, and Malfoy, what looks as like a comical thing, there's actually this much bigger, difficult question, which... Like sometimes I'm on one side of and sometimes I'm on the other.
1: I mean, I think it gets to the heart of when is it okay to knowingly cause someone else's pain? Right. And there's that famous expression of like, you have to be cruel to be kind. And I think that sometimes that is true. Right. I think that if you're breaking up with someone, you don't want to be creating hope and like dragging something along. It's better to be like, I just don't have feelings for you, if that's true. And end the relationship clearly with kindness and compassion, But you're going to cause pain rather than be in a fake relationship or lie or drag someone along. I think it's better to cause like a short amount of pain. But that line becomes so fuzzy and so complicated so quickly. And we've seen this like willingness to cause pain for goodness, right? Like McGonagall takes the firebolt away from Harry. Hermione tattles on Ron and Harry. There are moments in which people are willing to cause pain for somebody else sort of for their well-being. And I just think that that line becomes so complicated because theoretically, that is what the Ministry of Magic is doing by being willing to kill Buckbeak, right? They're willing to hurt Hagrid and kill Buckbeak in order to protect children.
0: And the same with Dementors, right? They're willing to use these very dangerous creatures to catch this potentially more dangerous killer on the run.
1: So I guess I just think that, like with you know Buckbeak and Hagrid, it's fine to cause pain for the greater good, but you have to be a hundred percent sure that it's the greater good. They are not 100% sure that Buckbeak is dangerous. If Buckbeak was really dangerous, why are they letting him come back onto Hogwarts ground and stay tied up? This makes no sense. And so I think that there are times in which you do have to be cruel to be kind. You yell at your child to stay away from the stove, right? And you're like, I would rather reprimand you and be like, no, 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 back away than like let your hand get burnt. But you just have to be a hundred percent sure that something really painful and awful is about to happen and that you are lessening the long term pain with a short term gesture.
0: Right. Well, I think what's what's interesting is that, yes, there's this moment of satisfaction that Hermione has in punching Malfoy. It doesn't change any of the fundamentals. And in fact, on the pitch, it might have made it worse. So, Vanessa, I do want to turn to something in the text which really surprised me on this reading. Trelawney is always the butt of everyone's jokes, right? We think she's crazy. But firstly, as Pavati and Lavender point out, she's predicted something correctly, right? One in our midst will leave us around Easter. And of course, Hermione quits the class, so one of us has left. That's the first thing, which is kind of interesting. But the second thing, which I think is more interesting, is that they're working with crystal balls and... What I realized is that Trelawney is teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction. Absolutely. She she's teaching like in your mind. Exactly. She's teaching meditation in the kind of John Cabot Zinn school, where she's like, there is the conscious and the unconscious. You kind of have to see the difference between what's happening and what your thoughts about what's happening are. I think this is very advanced stuff, and it's exactly what Hermione needs.
1: Hermione is in so much pain that the exact thing that she needs is being offered to her, and she's like, It offends her, right? She is not ready for this information because she needs
0: it. Right. And I think it's really mature that Harry is able to watch thoughts like, this is stupid, float by. And he's able to be conscious that that's a thought he's having. It's not what he is or who he is. This is some advanced stuff for these 13-year-olds.
1: God, I sound like such a weirdo in this episode. I'm like, the sorting system isn't Montessori enough. And I am like more and more pro-Trelawney. I think she's a woman with a problem. Like, she clearly has a drinking problem, which we find out about later. Again, like, I don't think she's a perfect character. But I think that she has a lot to teach these students. And I don't think Parvati and Lavender are idiot girls who are just, like, following her around for no reason. I think that she has a lot to teach. This is also coming from one of our listeners who we met in Seattle, pointed out a fan theory that I think is so interesting, which is earlier in this book, we know that Trelawney comes to Christmas dinner and she says that she doesn't want to join Christmas dinner because she'll be the 13th, that there'll be 13 people at the table. And then that curses the table and whoever the first to stand up is will die. And I was like, okay, clearly this woman is a kook because it's Ron and Harry and, like, they aren't the first ones to die. Dumbledore is. But Katie pointed out, and I think this is, like, a well-known fan theory, so I'm sorry if I'm behind everyone, but that Peter Pettigrew is already at the table And so with Ron and Harry and Peter Pettigrew sitting, there already were 13 people at the table and that the first person to stand up is Dumbledore when he welcomes Trelawney. And so that even that prophecy is true. I think that the books are making a through argument that even Trelawney's bogus predictions are true and maybe not all of them, but that there's more to her than we think. I think let's imagine the possibility that she stands in for the unknown and for like possibility and for mindfulness and mystery. I think that there's a lot that Trelawney can teach us that I was like Hermione and was like, this is too weird. I find this painful because it pokes right at the part of me that like doesn't want to let go of control. I don't want to believe in like mystical magic because that means that there isn't logic to the world. And that's scary, right? That means that bad things happen to good people. And that means that not everything is just. But I think Trelawney might be a stand-in for all of that, and we reject her because of our pain.
0: I can't help imagine Trelawney as, like, meditating 10 hours a day. Like, that's why she can't come down to dinner. It's like she's she's connected to another world. Yeah. Vanessa, before we finish this conversation, there's one other place where I thought there's an interesting point about pain in this chapter, which is, you know, after that Buckbeat has been condemned to death by the committee, Hagrid takes Buckbeat home, And says, I'm just going to make sure that Beaky's time is the happiest he's ever had. And it just reminded me so much of palliative care. You know, the idea of maybe you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. You know that you might have weeks or perhaps months left to live. And the kind of medical question is no longer, how can I fix you or how can I cure you? But it's really, how do we make these last few weeks and months as comfortable perhaps even as meaningful as possible. And I feel like that's how Hagrid is engaging pain. And I think in many ways, that's such a countercultural thing, right? We, we want to live forever in our culture, and it's all about surviving. And to admit that there is an end is something that's so unusual. Now, in this case, of course, it's an unjust execution that's coming up rather than perhaps a cancer diagnosis. But, you know cancer diagnosis is just as unjust in some ways. And so I just think it's a really beautiful illustration of wisely engaging pain when it's not a question of solving it or making it go away.
1: So Casper, now is time for our sacred practice, and this week we are going to do Havruta again. So I will ask a question, and I will present an answer. I know we've talked about this moment a lot, but I'm curious as to why Ron's response to Hermione's dual outbursts is one of being impressed. Hermione is acting so differently than usual she slaps someone she skips a class and then she quits a class and ron is impressed with hermione and like looks at harry like cool huh and my question for you is why does ron even love hermione if what impresses him most about her is when she's acting out of character And my answer is that rather than seeing this as Hermione acting out of desperation, they see this as their influence on her. Harry and Ron are both people who would skip class and who would pout out of things and who would love to hit Draco. And so my answer is that they don't see a friend in pain. They see a friend who's like been influenced by them.
0: Yeah, kind of validates their choices. You know, I think that's maybe what's going on with Ron is that so often Hermione's behavior is kind of the the exact opposite of what Ron does. You know, not that it shames him, but it certainly illustrates a different way of being. And this little interaction kind of validates his perspective on the world or how he thinks things should be done, even if he himself wouldn't do it. I often think about Ron and Hermione as kind of like a polarity, which harry has to navigate right they're two kind of both true things but opposite does that make sense yeah. and and harry kind of slides between the two and here's a moment where those two polarities maybe merge in some way yeah it, i i think it's a lot about ron's validation in a way that you know maybe hermione feels if ron were to work hard on his history of magic essay <laughs>
1: yeah Right. He would be acting out of character, but she'd be like, oh, so dreamy. Well,
0: actually, now that you say that, because Hermione has such a heavy workload and Harry's playing Quidditch all the time, Ron takes on the preparation for Buckbeak's defense in the appeal. So he takes on some of that legal work. So actually, maybe in this very chapter, we're seeing something where, where kind of Ron takes on the Hermione role and Hermione takes on a Ron role. <laughs> a Ron role. Try saying that very quickly Ron role. Ron role. <laughs>
1: I just worry that Hermione's two best friends are missing the fact that their friend is having a nervous breakdown. That's terrifying to me to think that someone I love could be having a breakdown right in front of me. And I'd be like, whoa, great haircut. Right. And like just like totally missing right. the like cries for help.
0: And not just Hermione. I mean, the text tells us that Neville's on the brink of a nervous breakdown as well. Right. And again, where are the teachers? <laughs> where are they?
1: <laughs> They're all on the brinks of their own nervous breakdowns. They're really upset about the friggin Quidditch game.
0: OK, so my question to you, Vanessa, is in that moment where Hermione kind of quits the class, right? She She says goodbye. The text tells us, fine, said Hermione suddenly, getting up and cramming, unfogging the future back into her bag. Fine, she repeated. Why does she put the book back in her bag? My answer to that would probably be that she wants to have it just in case, you know, she wants to add it to her library. She likes books. And maybe there's something in it that she hasn't yet read, although, of course, she has already read the whole book. But maybe there's something that she's forgotten that might come in useful one day. But if she really thinks that divination is so useless, why is she cramming the book back into her bag when it's already overflowing and too heavy?
1: Yeah, I mean, because she's still Hermione, right? I think Hermione treats knowledge is a scarce resource like she has to have all of it and she has to have all of it as quickly as possible because you never know when you're going to need it and so she like hoards knowledge which then this might get back to answer my previous question which is if she also threw the book in the fire maybe then Ron and Harry would be like that's not our Hermione anymore right like she's still showing enough signs of being herself that she is still this knowledge-hungry, learning person, even though she's having these outbursts.
0: Right. And if she had divination as part of a normal workload, she wouldn't have quit, I think, right? She would have made it through the whole year.
1: Oh, absolutely. She's not an easy quitter. I mean, the question sort of above the question we're asking is, what do we do when we think we're watching someone have a breakdown, right? And To what extent do we see this as like a phase that they're going through with necessary lessons that they're going to learn? Hermione is going to learn her limits. and, And to what extent are we judging Trelawney, Harry, Ron, Hagrid? Like, why isn't Hagrid going to McGonagall and being like, this girl is in my hut every day crying? There are just so many people who are witnessing her breakdown. Flitwick is annoyed at her that she missed class. And I can understand that as a pedagogical response of like, look, I know that you took on the time turner and it's backfiring. Sorry, Ms. Granger, do better. But I just feel like everybody is watching her flail and nobody is intervening. And the first intervention at all is Dumbledore putting a positive spin on this thing that's been an albatross around her neck throughout the entire book, but It makes me wonder what we're supposed to do when we see a friend who's in that kind of pain.
0: Yeah, you kind of wish that, like, Madame Pomfrey or McGonagall or someone kind of does what you're supposed to do when someone's having a breakdown which is to create as much of a safe space as you can for them both physically but also emotionally which i can imagine that the quidditch pitch is like the opposite of even though at the end of the chapter we see you know hermione like overcome with joy and emotion they they don't have any words they're just so glad for harry but you really need something more than than what she's getting for sure she's having to figure this all out on her own
1: I think that everybody gets lucky that this is as bad as her breakdown manifests, right? It doesn't lead to self-harm in any sort of permanent way. She doesn't harm anybody else. She doesn't, like, seriously injure Draco. She doesn't have to go to court for hitting someone. She somehow gets away with all of the ways that she's acting out. But that is, like, by the grace of God go all these characters. It's not that she's not in that, like, danger zone It's just luck that it doesn't get that bad.
0: This is slightly off topic, but I do have a new question for our next Havruta conversation, which is why doesn't Draco perform like great injury and like, I'm dying, I'm dying after he gets hit by Hermione? And of course, I know the answer, which is that she's a girl.
1: Yep, absolutely. (laughs) His manhood is on the line.
0: This week's voicemail is from Lauren, sent in a couple of weeks ago about Chapter 7, The Boggart in the Wardrobe.
2: Hi, Vanessa and Casper. I'm a big fan, but a new one. I just started listening to your podcast about a month ago, and I've already blown through all the episodes, and I'm caught up in time for your live show this Thursday in San Francisco, which I'm very excited about. I love the perspectives that you bring to the series. Actually, your episode on humor in the chapter, The Bogart and the Wardrobe, was one of my favorites. And my comment today is a little less than humorous. It's about Neville's Bogart, which turns into Snape in Neville's grandma's clothes. I think what's most troubling for me is this idea that wearing women's clothing diminishes a person, makes them less threatening somehow, and more ridiculous. There's this cultural concept that girls' clothing is associated with weakness and frivolity, but not practicality or functionality and this is of course irritating enough. But the other layer that this insidiously operates on is that when we read people as men and they are dressed in women's clothing or what we consider to be women's clothing, there's a reaction to that which I consider to be anti-trans. And in fact, it's coded in this chapter as ridiculous and the implication is that this is somehow unnatural. I couldn't help but wonder what some of my fellow HP fans who are gender non-conforming or trans might feel reading this and I just wanted to offer my blessings to folks who are queer, trans, gender non and yet who love Harry Potter. Sometimes it isn't easy, what with dormitory staircases that determine gender, and Bogarts getting dressed in drag in order to get laughs. But that's all I wanted to say. Thanks so much to you both, and I'm very excited to be seeing you soon. Lauren, thank you for that really
1: beautiful blessing. I think it's exactly right and very touching. And we've heard from a lot of people from the trans community with that exact concern, and I echo it. And I think that this is something that we have to contend with as sensitive people on many issues. The way that the texts portray weight, the way that the texts to a large extent do not deal with race. These are not perfect texts and we do not love it because it's perfect and we do not forgive it all of its faults. We deal with it in its complexities. And I just really appreciate you so generously and beautifully blessing so many of our listeners. So thank you.
0: After Lauren's beautiful blessing, It is time for us to offer one, too. Who are you going to bless this week?
1: I would like to bless Lavender and Parvati because the two of them treat Trelawney like a sacred text. They are looking for generous ways to make meaning of what Trelawney offers. Everybody else is looking to ridicule Trelawney. And the two of them are like looking for goodness in the prophecies that she offers, and they find so many blessings in it. And I think these lines are very fine. I think it gets dangerous, right? You want to look for the blessings that somebody offers you, but you don't want to treat them like a guru with all of the answers or is infallible. But I think that these two young women learn so much from Professor Trelawney that so many people lose under the shawl and you know some of the silly language and the heat in that room and i just want to bless these two brilliant young women for seeing a real teacher and learning from her
0: just like some people might look at a book about a wizard boy and think that it's all silly and miss all the beauty inside it
1: exactly what about you casper who would you like to bless this week
0: no surprise but i am going to bless percy weasley Gryffindor goes insane after they win the Quidditch cup. And there's this great moment in the text where we see Percy celebrating, jumping up and down like a maniac, all dignity forgotten. And it's one of those moments which I think is so beautiful when you see someone who's like known for being austere, or maybe they're in a kind of role of responsibility or where they're supposed to be serious all the time. And they just get so caught up in something that brings them joy and delight. And you see an inner humanity shine through. And we're going to see Percy really lose his way in the next couple of books. But here is the spark of the true weasley boy that he is and the just delight that he has from you know from seeing his two brothers on the pitch winning at a sport which i'm guessing he probably maybe was never very good at and so a blessing on him and anyone who's willing to look a little bit silly in front of others because they're just enjoying the moment
1: okay that gave me chills when you pointed out that it's like friend george isn't
0: that cute it's, it's so cute so cute You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We'd love to see you at one of our live shows. We'll be in New York on Sunday, July 16th, Philadelphia on Monday the 17th, and Washington, D.C. on Tuesday the 18th. You can find your tickets on HarryPotterSacredText.com.
1: You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. They make Casper really happy.
0: Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 16, Professor Trelawney's prediction through the theme of wonder. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text has been produced by Ariana Nedelman Vanessa Zoltan, and me, Kasper Kyle. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are proud to be part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm.
1: We would like to thank Lauren for this week's beautiful voice memo, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you so much for listening, and happy Fourth of July, everyone. I, for one, am so glad we left those English imperialists behind.
0: Fools! (laughs) You're all
2: fools.
1: (laughs) Did you know that only you can prevent forest fires?
0: Within the Wires is an immersive fiction podcast by Janina Mathewson and Night vale co-creator Jeffrey Craner. Each season, we unfold a brand new story strictly via found audio from an alternate 20th century. Season 4, The Cradle, is a story about a mother and daughter as they attempt to lead a family-centric commune surviving on the fringes of society. Subscribe to Within the Wires at nightvalepresents.com or wherever you get your podcasts.